You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. Hey, if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got about five or six of them there on the back table, some more in a box underneath the table. Take one, please. Um, That's our gift to you. But have the text in front of you as as we uh, go through it. Look, for many of you, uh, believe it or not, we are in the last two weeks of our series on Ecclesiastes. Um, Next week is Easter, so we'll take a little bit of a pause, and then we're going to close the series at the end of chapter 12. And like I said before, this week is the last of the writer's perspectives from a, from a secular point of view, okay? So we've talked about that before, but let me remind us, what the book of Ecclesiastes, the vast majority of it, is, in other words, all but the last few verses, um, from verse 9 to the end, are taken from the perspective of someone looking for hope, looking for uh, meaning in the world apart from a personal ultimate God. In other words, it's a, it's a thoroughly secular perspective. This may be shocking to some of us, but... Look, the, the Bible is not afraid of your questions. It's not afraid of your doubts, not afraid of your... Like, if you've been in a context, in a, in a community in which someone would say, well, you're not supposed to ask those kind of questions, it's not a biblical community. The Bible is not afraid of our questions. Um, those, like, when something claims to be uh, universal, ultimate truth, it, it doesn't have much to hide. And, and that's what the Scripture is. So... This book addresses things from that point of view um, to show its futility. And it does it with a word that we, that we have said over and over again called meaningless. Last week we looked at youth. We found that youth can't deliver on its promises, namely because it doesn't last. Okay? Most of us have come to realize this or are in the process of realizing this. It's a painful process. Uh, pray for us. But this week we look at It's corollary, right? We look at age. Because over the course of this entire series, we have have consistently been brought back to one reality that seems to marginalize everything. One reality that empties everything of ultimate meaning. And this week, we look at that reality square in the face. So if you have your place in Ecclesiastes 12, I invite you to stand as we place ourselves under the authority of God's Word as it is preached, uh, we'll be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. This is God's Word, friends. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, The grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. The doors on the street are shut. The sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. 
Because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Meaninglessness. Meaninglessness, says the preacher. All is meaningless. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? As we have proclaimed, Lord Jesus, you are our king. And you are a king who came with a sword from your mouth, which is your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would use that on us this morning to draw us closer to you, to give us faith and repentance. Lord Jesus, if you do not speak, we are lost. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and open our hearts You would open our ears, that you would let Christ and his cross come to the fore, and the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord, because you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so it is to you we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so we've said this, uh, you know, like half a dozen times already this morning, but it's Palm Sunday. Um, It it is that day when when we proclaim the the kingship of Christ, as as Rebecca read for us, and as we saw kind of demonstrated with the children Kind of. I believe my son was doing the rowing of the palms. Um, that was an interesting way to proclaim Jesus' kingship. Um, anyway, the, if you're anything like me, you've been to church long enough to celebrate this week before, you've probably looked at the stories of these crowds that are shouting Hosanna on Sunday and crucify on Friday, and you've thought to yourself, like, what is wrong with these people? They need a fickle people. Right? Here they cheer Jesus as king. In a few days, they're going to be shouting for his execution. And what we are tempted to do then is to cast scorn over them as getting it all wrong. Right? They just got it all wrong. Jesus didn't come to be a king. Jesus came to, to be a great teacher or a great leader or some kind of spiritual guru. Like If they had just seen that that's what Jesus was about, they would have gotten it right. But here's the thing. The, the crowd wasn't wrong. At least not on... Sunday. Jesus himself said that they were right. right? The, some of the religious leaders were telling, telling Jesus, like, do you hear these people? You should make them stop. Okay, and we'll get to why about that in a second. And Jesus said, look, if I made them stop, rocks would start crying out. Like, what they're doing is right. I am king. I am coming as king. The thing is, though, that they, they, though they rightly thought that he was their king, that he was coming to defeat their greatest enemy, where they failed is they thought that greatest enemy was Rome. They thought that was Rome. But Jesus came to put an end to a greater enemy. One up to that point, one that had never lost a fight. And one that made all things meaningless. And that's what we're looking at this morning as we come to this text. So we're going to look at this. There's an outline in your bulletin. You know that. There's, we're going to look at this in a, in a few different ways. We're going to look at the coming of age. Then we're going to look at the coming of death. And then finally, the coming of the king. All right? The coming of age, coming of death, and then the coming of the king. All right. Let's get started with the coming of age. This passage is highly metaphorical, which is to say that it's trying to communicate um, using, using a lot of word pictures. Okay? And the first thing that it's trying to deal with is, is the opposite of what we looked at last week. It's the coming of age. Let's look first at remembering. Look down at verses 1 and 2. He says this, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come. All right, now stop there. 
Now, one of the ways that we could take this, um, I don't think it's the right way, but one of the ways that we could take this is to see this as that of an older dude who's kind of looking at younger people and saying, make peace with God while you're young. Now, the problem is, is that the rest of this passage doesn't really speak to any kind of hope that would come from doing that, okay? The purpose of this particular phrase, of this, the way of starting this way, isn't to say, make your peace with God, so much as to say, um, remember, or is to say that, uh, not God per se, but your creator. Remember, he's trying throughout this entire book to avoid a personal ultimate God. So what he's trying to get at is not the fact that there's the God, but that it's your creator. In other words, he's trying to communicate that you and I have one. We have a creator, and it's not us. You're like, duh. Okay, but listen, follow me for a second. Because over and over again in, the book, in this book, the teacher has been seeking independence. He's been seeking a way to assert himself through some means, whether it's power or sex or money or whatever. I'm going to assert myself and assert my way of doing things. But in the end, he finds himself still coming to the conclusion that he is not independent, that he is not self-determining. But he has a creator. And his point is simply this. Come to grips with this before age begins to take over. Now, let me say that again in another way. There is something deep in us that wrestles against the idea of a personal ultimate God. And it's not because we have all of these theological reasons or kind of apologetic reasons or intellectual questions. I know those are there, and some of you have those, and those are perfectly valid. We can talk about those. But at root, the reason why we struggle against that idea is because we don't want to be beholden to anyone. And if you have a creator, that means you have someone who has defined reality who has intended something by shaping you, someone to whom then you are accountable. I am accountable. And we don't want that. And he is saying, you have got to come to grips with this before age begins to take over. And that's where he goes in verses 3 to 5. Look there now. These verses are beautiful art, and here's why. On the literal level, you could take this... um, You can look at these verses and see that what is being talked about is the closing of a very large house. A house that has lots of servants, lots of people working in it. The kind of thing that would be done as a funeral procession goes by in the ancient world. Okay? Very, very obvious that that in some way this is a picture that's trying to be painted. But here's the thing. Some of these things make no sense when taken purely on that level. In other words, when it talks about the grinders stopping working because there are few of them, what, what that word picture is talking about is people who are grinding flour, like milling. But if there aren't that many, then there would be more grinding, not less, because people have to work harder. You know what I mean? So there are certain things like that that don't quite fit the bill. Um... But all of them can be taken figuratively to speak of what happens when we age. Okay? Follow me for a second. Talks about trembling, right? Talks about the fact that that, uh, the keepers of the house tremble. That's something that happens with the arms and hands. Being bent is something that can be said of knees that are weakened or a back that can't quite uh, hold itself up anymore. The grinders that are few. uh, Many scholars will tell you that that would speak to teeth. I mean, in the ancient world, they're not exactly great for dentistry. You know what I mean? Uh, and, 
the dimming of those behind the windows would speak to difficulties in memory. And then, of course, we have the sleeplessness that's spoken of verse 4. Right? Can't, what, what's interesting is that the end of that verse speaks to hearing loss, which is funny. It's like, when you're awake, you can't hear, you can't hear anything. When you're asleep, everything seems to wake you up. Uh, but, and then in verse 5, speaks to the fearing of heights, which we feel in old age because of fear of falling. I should say the only older person I know who seems absolutely fearless when it comes to precarious heights is Carlton Laundry, who is a stud who trims his own trees at the top of a ladder while pushing 90. Okay? Awesome. All right. Okay. The blossoms of the almond tree. I know, I know all of us are very familiar with almond trees, right? Almond tree blossoms are white. Okay? White blossoms, like changing of hair color. Uh, the grasshopper dragging itself along probably needs no real explanation. And then we have this talk of desire. Oh, desire. Um, I love the Bible. When it says desire, we need to be very clear about what kind of desire our teacher is talking about. Okay? The word desire, when they translate that word, it's a bit of a gloss that the ESV and almost every other translation glosses uh, to, to say desire because of probably some red cheeks and some embarrassment. Okay? Uh, the, the actual word in, um, in the Hebrew and, and the way it's translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament is the word for caperberry. Okay, a caperberry, again, I'm sure all of you are very well aware of caperberries. Uh, caperberries are a um, kind of berry in the ancient Near East that was thought to be an aphrodisiac. It's talking about desire. The closest we could come would be Viagra. And basically, he is saying, it don't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore. Okay, not to be too cheeky, but now you can see why he calls them evil days. All right, so um, in a highly poetic way, our teacher is explaining the ravages of age using the image of a funeral procession passing by a stately house. Clearly, he is not viewing this as positive. These are evil days full of terrors and failure and weakness. If youth didn't satisfy, if youth couldn't deliver on our hopes, he certainly has no illusions that age can. Okay? And that brings us to the end of the procession. Look down at verse 6 to see how value is dissolved. He says this, The silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken. Now, two things to say about this. First, whatever else we're going to say about a silver cord and a golden bowl and whatever he means by that, you have to understand they are items of value. Okay? They are items of value. Not many people have ropes made of silver in their house, except for the chains we wear on our neck. And golden bowls aren't exactly something we keep around either. When he says silver cord, he's not talking about, um, you know, like the Greek myths of the fates who have their little thing and they snip it when, it when it's your time to die. The Hebrews had no such story. He's literally speaking of a rope made out of silver. And the, and the same thing going with a golden bowl. Like it's literally a bowl made out of gold. And so what he is envisioning is something immensely valuable coming to an end. That's the second thing we want to say about it. He's talking about their destruction. This isn't just like, oh, I have one rope, now I have two. Like, he's talking about it being destroyed. Something valuable being destroyed. And just so we're clear on what he's talking about, he uses these water metaphors, right? Look there, right at the end of verse 6, he talks about the pitcher being shattered, the fountain, the wheel broken at the cistern. Uh, Well-type imagery is not something we connect to very well because when you and I turn on our faucet, water comes out. We don't think about where it comes from, how it got there, how many chemicals are in it. Like It's like, I'm thirsty, we turn it on. 
If you live in a desert, your well or your cistern are the most important aspects of your life. If you do not have them, you die, plain and simple. And he's talking about a pitcher with which you would take water out of your well, broken. The wheel at the cistern is that thing that you would crank to get the thing to come up so that you could get water from it, shattered. In other words, life-giving things, especially for those who live in a desert, destroyed. Okay, why does this matter? This matters because we need to understand that in the story of the Bible, life matters. Embodied life matters. Okay? I said this last week, but let me make it a little more explicit. In the story of Scripture, God created all things, and he called it all good. Um, In other words, that means God intended for matter to exist. For this to exist. He intended that. It's not a mistake. This is important for us to understand because we tend to think that God deals in the spiritual, by which we mean the non-material, and doesn't seem to care much about material reality. But the story of Scripture says that God makes everything and pays particular time and attention on making one particular aspect of creation. Us. If you read the first couple chapters of Genesis, what you would notice is that God, by divine fiat, is saying things. He's speaking things. Let there be, and it happens. Let there be, and it happens. And then all of a sudden, he pauses. Like the narrative takes a pause He sits back and he starts thinking and he says, let us make man in our image. And then he he doesn't speak it, let there be humanity. Like It says that he gets his hands dirty. He puts his hands in the dust and he molds a person and then he breathes life into them. It is the only aspect of creation that we are told God literally digs his fingers into the mud and does something with. In other words, there is a fundamental difference between humanity and the rest of creation. A fundamental difference. It is a difference of category. There is plant and animal and all this stuff, and then there's human. It's not to say there's no connection between them. It's to say God spent particular time here We are the only thing in all of creation that is described as being in the image of God. And here's all this ties in. God creating humanity from the dirt, Him breathing life into humanity means, if nothing else, that you and I were made for life. And that when death happens, when life frees from that body, The teacher is telling us something valuable has been lost. The silver rope has been snapped. The golden bowl destroyed. Humanity was created to be a union of body and soul. uh, uh, Linked. And, And death dissolves that. And this reality is brought front and center in the last two verses. Look there now in verses 7 and 8. Let's, Let's look at creation undone. He says this. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
In Genesis 2-7, what we are told is that God takes the dust, forms a man, and breathes a spirit into him. Here we are told the exact opposite. That, that when death happens, these, the, creation is undone. Now, I need to be clear. When it says that the spirit returns to the God who gave it, he is not giving some kind of theological treatise on what happens when you die. That is not the purpose of this book. Uh, that, that is, this is not a theology of the afterlife. You see, many of us have been taught, or at least we've come to believe by default, that when we die, that which is most true of us, right, the thing that is most true of us flitters off um, to, to go be somewhere else, and that what wasn't all that important, that is our body, is shed, okay? If you've been told that perspective, and you've been told that that's Christian, um, you've been deceived. That is not to say that there isn't... Um, that the Lord himself doesn't say that there is, a, there is another state called heaven in which we exist before something. It's to say that even that is not the goal. It is a bus stop. It is a bus stop. The martyrs around the throne. If you're, if, look, if you're a Christian this morning, you're familiar with the Bible. In the book of Revelation, it says the martyrs that are around the throne who are living in a state in which they have no body are saying, How long, Lord? Why has it got to be like this? I wasn't made for this. It's made for a body. It's made to be embodied. What the teacher is saying here is not, here is what happens when you die. Okay? That, that wouldn't square with the rest of the passage or the book. Instead, what he is saying is that death undoes creation. In creation, God united body and soul in a, in a union. And death reverses that. Which means that, bottom line, death is not meant to be here. It is an invader. It undoes the work of God. Because you see, we were made for life. A life found in a dependent relationship with God. And what that means is that we were designed to depend on Him for breath, for meaning, uh, for, for life, for identity, to understand reality, to know good from evil. We were meant to depend on Him for everything. Everything. He lovingly provided for us. We lovingly depended on Him. But in time... We were tricked into believing a lie. Now, the content of that lie was less insidious than the presupposition behind it. Uh, less insidious by, than the assumption that came with it. The assumption was namely that God uh, was lying to us. That he wasn't for our good. That he was, in fact, holding us back. And we believed that lie. That God isn't really for us. That he doesn't really love us. That he's actually trying to restrict us from living into our potential. And we betrayed him by doing the one thing he told us not to. Because, you see, the actual content of the lie was that if we ate the fruit of a given tree, that we would become like God. That we would be able to define reality for ourselves. God never said that. God never said, you eat this fruit, you're going to be able to define reality for yourself. You'll actually know as if there's a, some kind of standard over and above God that says good and evil. God knows what that standard is. He's holding us back from knowing it. But if we eat the fruit, we'll actually get it. No, no. He's the standard. We already knew him. He didn't say that you would come to be like me if you ate the fruit. The snake did. The serpent did. Satan did. The enemy did. But what God did say is that breaking relationship with him, seeking independence from him, 
would lead to death. And that is exactly what happened. We betrayed God, which is what the Bible calls sin, okay? We, we've, most of us live in a culture in which sin is viewed as breaking a few pre- precious rules, namely having to do with sexuality and some kind of substance abuse, right? That, that is not uh, the Bible's definition of sin. The Bible's definition of sin is turning away, betraying God, seeking independence from Him. And historically, when we did that, all of humanity became betrayers. And what sin does, biblically, what sin does is it separates things. What God makes to be together, it separates, it divides. We see that right at the beginning in the story because we were made for a relationship with God and all of a sudden our relationship with Him is fractured, we're scared, we're shameful. We're made for a relationship with each other. And here the first, the first marriage, the dude who's like singing love songs to his wife, not, you know, just a few verses ago, all of a sudden is like, I don't, don't look at me. You know, like putting fig leaves on and then throwing her under the bus when God shows up. Like, And then ultimately, it even divides body and soul in death. Like I said before, death is not part of life. It is not part of life. It is the consequence of seeking life independent from God. It is part of our guilt. And the utmost part of that being spiritual death, or what the Bible calls hell. Just see, guilt isn't the only problem. Something else happened. Because you see, in the Bible, after, after the garden, sin isn't just what we do. It's actually who we are. Uh, and so, by nature, it says that we are stuck believing the lie. Believing the lie that God doesn't love us. It's not, we don't have to be taught that. It's not like when we're born, like someone has to teach us, God doesn't love you. You know, it's like, that, is, that is inborn in us. That God does not want for our good. In other words, independence is now our default. We are stuck in it. We sin because we are sinners. Look, Jesus said this. He said that you can't get bad fruit from a good tree. You can't get good fruit from a bad tree. And it's out of your heart that all this bad stuff comes. not like you do bad stuff and it makes your heart bad. It's that we sin because by nature we are sinners. We are stuck. Which means that you and I are stuck under the power of death. And friends, this is why the teacher reaches his conclusion over and over and over again. This is why he ends this passage in verse 8 the same way he began, saying, it's all meaningless. Everything's meaningless. Because death is inevitable. Because we cannot, we cannot fix what caused it. We cannot fix our betrayal of God. If we are to be set free from meaninglessness, if we are to be set free from death, then there will, we will need to be rescued from the sin that caused it. And this is something that you and I cannot do on our own. And that brings us to the coming of the King. Listen, I began our time talking about how Jesus came into Jerusalem that day 2,000 years ago. He came into the city to the loud shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, which means save. This is all royal language, right? I know it doesn't strike with us, but all the palms and the donkey, that's the weirdest part, but like the the palms and the donkey, all of that is intentional kingly imagery pulled from the Old Testament prophets, particularly the prophet Zechariah. Jesus is intentional. He spent three years in relative obscurity hanging out in the countryside. And then one day he decides to himself, and it wasn't on his own, I'm sure, he, he decides it's time to go to Jerusalem. 
And, and, and the, I, th- I think it's the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the Gospels of Luke, at least, says that he, he turned his face towards Jerusalem. It's like he set his face there and he said, that's where I'm going. And as he's approaching, he says, um, guys, I need a better ride. I need you all to go into town and get me a donkey. And it's not like everyone was going, why? They knew what that meant. That was one of the most popular passages in the, in the Old Testament during that time. It's like that in Daniel 9. It's like, so if you, if, you, if you were a Jew during that day, everyone knew exactly what was going on. Jesus was presenting himself as king. As king. And look, this was not missed by anyone. Humanly speaking, what happened on Palm Sunday is what killed Jesus. Because he marched into an occupied city and said, Caesar doesn't rule, I do. And then he went up to the temple and he said, this is all going to be destroyed. This thing is obsolete. I'm here. And the religious leaders, the ones who had the power, the Sadducees, the folks in the temple said, we got to do something about this joker. And they did. Because he was claiming to be king. And not just any king. God's long-awaited king who would make the world right again. Now, listen, because if we miss this, we miss everything. We turned our backs on God. We betrayed him, but God never turned his back on us. Because right there at the point of our betrayal, he promises, I'm going to make this right. I will fix this. He would rescue us from our guilt. He would rescue us from our corruption. He would even rescue us and bring us back from the alienation that we now had from him because we had to leave his presence. And as the story goes, he chooses this dude named Abraham. He says, it's going to be through your family that I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring the blessing to the world through you. Abraham wasn't looking for him. Abraham was worshiping some false god in a city called Ur. You know, like he's uh, hanging out there. God comes and says, no, 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 you're coming with me. I'll tell you where we're going on our way. And it's through your family that I'm going to fix everything. And then as the story continues, we see that it's going to be even more specific. Not just through Abraham's family, but through David's. You know, David, slingshot, Goliath, you know, kills the giant, all that stuff. Like, David's family, like, the king after God's own heart, it's going to be through his family. But there's only one problem. Both Abraham's family and David's family are royally messed up. Like, there is no bigger story of a jacked up family than David's. Just read what his kids end up doing to each other. Read what his oldest son ends up doing. Kicks dad out, has fun with his dad's girls, and then, and then proclaims himself king and then runs away like a coward when dad comes home. Like, it's, that family is messed up. They are in need of as much rescue as the rest of us are. The need is so great that eventually God sends this entire family into exile from the land that he promised them. I'm sending you away. We're doing the garden all over again, guys. But then he says, as he's sending them away, but I have a plan and I will make this right. I will do it through Abraham's family, through David's family, in fact. I will make the world right again. And that is where Jesus comes in. Because you see, because of the fact that all of us, all of humanity is in the same boat We are sinners by nature. A rescuer had to come from the outside. And so, in Jesus, God took on flesh. 
He joined humanity to himself to rescue us. He, he lived a life that was perfect, which means he never sinned. And he declared himself in word and in deed as the king that everyone was waiting for. Listen to me. When Jesus healed people, when he told demons to take the next bus out of town, or, or better yet, like, go hitch a ride on the pigs, like, he wasn't saying, look how much like God I am. What he was saying is, the king has come to right the world. And I'm starting now. Sickness, gone. Evil, done with. Alienation, ended. I will order this people around myself. I am the king that you are waiting for. But here's the problem. Because they were expecting something very different. Because they, like us, began to believe that the problem that they had was with their circumstances. Their problem was everybody else. They saw the problem being the fact that the Romans ruled, the Romans who hated God. The fact that they were disenfranchised. They were powerless. Couldn't get the good jobs. Were vulnerable. And so when Jesus marched into the city as the king who had come to defeat their enemies, they thought he was coming to defeat Rome. They thought what he was coming to do was to flip the script so that now they had the power and Rome didn't. They didn't want the king that God had sent them. They wanted a, a Jewish Caesar. But he wasn't coming for that. And when they realized that that was not why he came, their cries went from Hosanna to crucify. Jesus came not to destroy Rome. See, Rome was simply a servant of a greater enemy. Sin and death. Jesus came to rescue us from those enemies. He didn't come to give lessons. Jesus came to do battle. He came to do battle. He came to disarm death, to remove its teeth, to take away its power. And he did this by taking our place. Look, death is the consequence for sin. And so Jesus went to the cross to bear that for us. He died in our place. It is there on the cross, the, the strangest of places, that Jesus actually did battle for us. He did battle with death. Because you see, death is only powerful so long as sin remains. It only has power so long as sin remains. Once he had taken the consequences for sin, death could no longer hold him. And so, as we'll celebrate next week, he rose. Now, here's where this comes to bear in our lives. You see, if Jesus simply rose from the dead for himself, then yay for him. Isn't that great? Stuff happens. Like, it, you know, it's just it, great. But he didn't. He came as a substitute. Remember, we were made for dependence on God. So Jesus came so that we could return to depending on Him. What this means is placing our faith in Jesus instead of on our abilities to make things better. Not to be too morbid here this morning, but maybe we need to be. What do you do with death? I mean, what are you going to do with the fact that you will die? That's not an option. That's not like, well, I'd rather not. You know, our culture wants to say, you know, what we're going to do is we're just going to not think about that. We're not going to think about that. 
Or it's better, we'll try and make it seem like this is a really good thing. It is not. Look, even if you're a Christian here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know, why isn't it? It's a good thing. I'll be fine. Yes, you'll be fine. What about those that you leave? What about those that you leave? You'll be great. I'll be great. I'm not scared of death. Paul says death is hey, better by far to go be with the Lord. Be here with you. Like that, That's basically what he's saying. But the point is this. It's not about you. What about everybody else? What about everyone that you're leaving? What will you do with death? Death ultimately makes our hopes fail. You cannot escape meaninglessness on your own. Our problem is not with our circumstances, right? So if you just change those, like worked a little harder, everything's going to be better, you can't clean yourself up and pretend that the problem isn't that bad. Scripturally, listen to me, scripturally, the problem is not that you're not good enough. The problem is you're dead, and you can't fix dead with good. Dead does not get fixed with good. You have to be made alive by Jesus. Repent of all the ways you've been seeking independence from Him. Whether, that, whether that's trying to be really moral and make God like you, or, 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 or trying to be really immoral because you assume God hates you, or whether it's just trying to pretend that you can decide what is right, wrong, good, bad, or whatever. And instead, it means placing all of your weight on Jesus. Because He is the only hope for us. Last thing. Listen, we have used this phrase in this series over and over again. When you hear us at Holy Cross like use language over and over again, the, the reason is simple. It's, it's meant so that at some point it gets fixed in here. And we've used this phrase that, that we take good things and make them ultimate, right? And that when we do that, they become meaningless. We are tempted to think we can simply take something down from being meaningless, leave that spot open, and just kind of go on with life. When you say, you're right, you're right, Rick, okay. Life. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here isn't even so much the meaninglessness of age as it is of life in general. You say, okay, yeah, you're right. Okay, I'll take life down. It can't be ultimate for me. I can't, and I'll just move on. You don't understand. We were designed to have something there. It is as if there is this seat in your heart in which something has got to be present. It will be there. It's not even just like, okay, well, Someone's telling you, you've got to put something, and you're like, okay, I mean, eh. it's, it's that something will be there. The only escape from meaninglessness is through Jesus. The only way to let everything return to being good, money, power, sex, relationships, youth, age, whatever, is by letting God in Jesus be that ultimate that we were made for. None of these other things can deliver on their promises. Because if you have all the money in the world, like the teacher says, you will die. And it will probably be left to a fool who will waste it. If you have all the power in the world, you cannot tell death, not today. Eh, not feeling it, you know? If you, if you have all of the approval and applause of the world, it will not stop death from coming. It can't. It is all meaningless in the end. Money can't stop it. Youth fades before it. Sex can't keep it away. Control is a joke in front of it. 
Because the only one who has ever won a fight against death and against meaninglessness is Jesus. And so here at the end of this, like at the end of all of these messages, we come to the same truth. We need to return to him. Because ultimately, he is the king that we were made for. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue to celebrate your kingship, Lord, we should probably just confess. We don't know what that means. (laughs) We're certainly not sure if we live into it. Because at the end of the day, uh, we are those who want our own way. And so, Lord, we need you to come and to make things right for us. For those of us who, are, who have been trusting in Jesus for a long time, I, Lord, I ask that you would come and deepen our repentance and faith because we are prone to wander. And we need to believe the gospel again. For those of us who have never trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that we would put away those things that we have been hoping in and instead run to him. None of us can do that on our own, Lord. Faith is a gift. You give it. And so I ask that you would give it abundantly this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.